Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. things that um, I've enjoyed in my hobby life over, well, since I was probably eight years of age. There's a little hobby that some of you would know, most of you would not. It was a secret shame until I grew up to the point where I was able to just accept that it's not cool anymore. And there perhaps never was. And some of you, if you've known me for a little while, would know that I've already shared this deep truth from within me. And it's that I play Warhammer. I know. And some of you are going, what is that? Most of you are going, what is, what is Warhammer? Well, Warhammer is a tabletop game in which you collect these little 28 millimeter high figures that are made of plastic and you paint them with a teensy, teensy, tiny little brush, which seems to be getting harder as I get older. It was really easy when I was eight, with all that dexterity. But then you, with these beautifully painted armies, you verse someone else on this battlefield, and you reenact some, a, a, a battle of old, or you reenact a fantasy-type battle of some sort. And it's a strategy game. I, I liken it, in a way, to chess, although chess is far more socially acceptable in most circles, because you're, you're attempting to out-strategize your opponent. And so often in the game that I have found, I've played it for years and I've won quite a, quite a number of games, one of the, the key strategies that I have found most effective in the game is that when, we are, when, I'm, when you're outmatched, you have to figure out some different strategies to overcome your opponent. Is that there's different units with different strengths and so you put your little group of swordsmen right in the middle of the field and then a dragon drops in and you're like, wow. There's nothing I can do about that. So you have to figure out a different way to tackle the problem, to, to, to try and achieve victory overall. Now, why am I telling you about this? When you can't win, you have to try something else. When you can't win a stand-up fight, sometimes you need to try something else. A favorite strategy that I developed was something called distraction. And so you, you, you use, another, use a unit off to one side to draw your opponent's attention away from the center of the battlefield. And, we, and the hope is that this distraction will draw some of the most effective troops that they have out of the center of the battle, which enables you to overcome the middle, the center, the core of the battle, and even maybe one of the other flanks. And by doing so, you're able to achieve an overall victory by sheer strategy, not by weight of numbers, not by power. Friends, we exist in a world where there is a war going on. 
If you were with me, with us a few weeks ago, we talked about heaven. We talked about the forces that are at work in the world. And friends, we have an enemy, a spiritual enemy, whose primary purpose in the world is to distract us, to distract us from the center of what is most important. The, the entire narrative of, narrative of Scripture tells us that the enemy, some of you will call it Satan, Jesus calls it Satan and other things as well. There's an enemy to the will of God and its hope and its desire is to bring destruction into the world, to steal away our hearts, to steal away our hopes, away from God, away from the one that created us. And the truth and the beautiful thing of the narrative of, of the Scripture, and as we've already talked about, the death and resurrection of Jesus, is that death was defeated. Satan lost his power. He has no ability to win the battle. And for that, we say thanks be to God, right? But the thing that he is able to do when he cannot win a stand-up fight is to distract us. To turn our attention another place, to turn our attention to another way of doing life. That though he knows, though the enemy knows that we cannot be defeated in Christ, we can be distracted. And I would go as far as to suggest that in this era of the church, in this era of the world, for us as the Western church, the greatest barrier that we are ever going to have to overcome is not fighting the enemy. It's fighting the distractions, the contentment, the things that just have been placed in our life to draw our eye away from God. What an interesting way to start a sermon. Do you feel inspired this morning? Because if, if, if I'm honest, if we are as the church, now if you're new or you're visiting or you're not a follower of Jesus, I'd love for you to hear some of our heart behind this. But I believe that one of the greatest challenges upon us as a church it's not fighting the enemy, it's fighting the contentment that the enemy wants to distract us with. What sort of church do we want to be? What sort of church do we need to be? Because in this era of the world, there is a culture. A culture that says that we know what's best for us. A culture that says we can do what we think is best for us. And as we look around at our culture, what we recognize is it's not working. I talked about last week the way that the loneliness and the lack of community is actually killing us. And what we see in the pace and rhythm of our life now, we thought COVID would be a circuit breaker and it's turned out not to be the case. Because we, most of us find ourselves busier than we were at the start of 2020. There's an ambient anxiety upon our young people, a chaos. Some people, you don't know how to describe it, but there's a, a, a chaos in the world. We feel it, we know it, we see it. It's intangible, but it's there. What is it? It's, it's a distraction from the core that we are called to be. And so, friends, I believe that as a church, 
we are called to be radically different from the culture around us. That we are called to be radically different. That if we, as Christ's hands and feet in the world, are called to proclaim a message of hope, then we need to be a, have a culture that's radically different to the world around us. And I believe the culture we are called to have is not a culture driven or distracted with contentment and, and comfort. I believe it's called, we're called to something very different. And so over the last, over last weekend, for the rest leading up to Easter, we, I'm preaching into a series called Shaping Culture. That if we are going to be a church that is a f- effective in proclaiming the gospel to our town, in seeing lives transformed with the good news of Jesus, then we need to look different. Then we need to be distinct. We need to be undistracted. We need to be focused. And so over this series, what we're doing is we're looking at the values we can hold to shape our culture to make a difference in the lives of people, to be different enough that we can do and be all that God calls us to be to reach our town. And this morning I want to focus on, as Mel sort of hinted at as we began, I want to focus on prayer, the core value of fervent prayer. And the reason that, I th- the reason that we felt called to place fervent prayer as a, as a part of the behaviors that we will live out as a church is that, well, prayer is kind of assumed, isn't it? Because then, whether you're a follower of Jesus or whether you're not, you, most of us, all of us, I think, have prayer as a part of our life. Whether, whether we pray to God or, or, or something else, or we're not quite sure how it all fits together, all of us are creatures of prayer. Do you know how I know? Is that when you are, if you are in an aeroplane that is going down, what do you do? You pray. You're not really sure who you're praying to, perhaps. If you're not a, if, you know, if you're not a Christian, you might be not quite sure. If you, you're a different part of a different religion, it might be a different being, but in your belief system. But we, when we are at the end of that which we have, we're at the end of our capacity, when we're at the end of our rope, we're at the end of our, of our realm of control. All of us, in some form, turn to prayer. And the most wonderful thing about that is that if that is our default position, then that's a good thing. It means that you and I, we have more faith than we think we do. Because we, if we were to turn to God in prayer, it assumes a bunch of different things. It assumes that God knows that we exist. God cares that you exist. God is listening to, your, to what you have to say, and that God has the power to do something about it. That's a, pretty, that's a lot of faith, don't you think? So be encouraged that even if you've never prayed before, and even if the prayers that you pray are just at, when you're at the end of yourself, you never think of God at any other stage, you have more faith than you think you do in a God that created you. So if you hear nothing else this morning, think of 
that. But the reason that we've called this fervent prayer as a core value is that we believe that as to be a culturally distinct church, to be all that God has called us to be, we need more than aeroplane prayers. We need more than the average arrow prayer that we shoot God's direction when we don't know what to do next, when we are out of our control, when we run to the end of ourselves. We believe that to be a radically transformed community, we need more prayer than that. We need deeper prayers than that. And so we decided we would have a culturally distinct marker in our community called fervent prayer. Now, what is fervent prayer? Well, fervor, by definition, is zeal. It's, it's passion. It's, it's intensity. And I wonder, has your prayers had that flavor lately? Fervent prayer, I believe, is what will shape us as a community to be radically different, to have what we require to live out the calling that God has placed on our life. When we open Scripture, I suppose the question might be, well, Josh, I pray a little bit and, you know, I, I pray a little bit in the morning or we say grace at the table and, and all that sort of stuff. Why do I need to pray any more than that? What difference does it really make? Well, when we open the, passage, when we open the pages of Scripture, what we discover is that for all of those that we look to as people to embody, as people to follow, each one of them had fervent, passionate prayer as the center of their life. When we look to the rhythm of Jesus, do you remember how Jesus' ministry began? What did he do? He was baptized. He was about 30 years of age. He was baptized in the Jordan River. And then what happened? He went out for 40 days in the wilderness and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And that prayer time grounded him for the ministry that was to come. But then he would go engage in an intense part of ministry. It would drain him. And then what would he do? He would retreat to a solitary place and to pray. And then he would gauge in ministry again, heal a stack of people, do a bunch of cool stuff, and then he would withdraw and pray. Now, friends, if nothing else, it might be helpful for you to hear this morning that if Jesus had to pray like that to engage in ministry, if Jesus had to pray and have a rhythm like that, to engage in ministry. What makes you think that you and I are any different? If Jesus had to live a life of fervent prayer, what makes you think that you and I need to live a life that is any different? And if we look right through Scripture, we find that again and again and again, God's people turn to Him in prayer. If we turn right back to Genesis... Genesis 18, we've got Abraham, Abraham, the father of the church, in a sense, prays in Genesis 18. 
He prays to God. For who? He prays for a town called Sodom. And he pleads for them. And he prays, and he prays, and he prays. But one of the things that I find really interesting as we look at this passage, I'm going to read it for us, and then we'll see something. It says, when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? See, these men were about to bring destruction on the town of Sodom for its ungodliness. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see what they have done, as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord, and he approached the Lord and he said, are you going to sweep away the righteous and the wicked? What if I can find 50 righteous people in the city? Will you sweep them away? And God relents to that and he says, okay, if you can find 50 people that follow the Lord, I will not bring judgment. And he says, okay, what, if, what about five? What about five people? Would you bring judgment on them for five people? And God responds to him and says, oh, well, okay, I guess. If, if you can find five people, then I will not bring destruction. And Abraham continues in prayer and he says, okay, so what about 20? Or even 10? And on and on and on the conversation goes as, a, as Abraham pleads for the community to be saved. Friends, I think sometimes in our prayer, what, is, what does fervent prayer look like? Sometimes fervent prayer looks like seeking God over and over and over again. We believe in a God, we believe, we believe in prayer that is powerful and effective. We believe in a God that knows us. We believe in a God that loves us. We believe in a God that invites us to talk with Him and to communicate and to ask things of Him. Which, we, which means we believe that prayer makes a difference. And so as we think about what fervent prayer might be for us as a church, I think sometimes fervent prayer needs to just be to contend with God over and over and over again, believing that God's graciousness can prevail. Believing that God can and will and wants to do something different. And sometimes, fervent prayer looks like being unwilling to let God go until something changes. Because we fast forward a little bit further in, in Genesis, and we read in Genesis chapter 32, a guy called Jacob wrestles 
with God until dawn. It's a strange passage because I think this is the only sport mentioned in Scripture, to my knowledge. Wrestling. Don't know why. It is what it is. Someone could correct me on that, and that's fine. But that night, Jacob got up, took his two wives and his female servants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his stuff. So Jacob was left alone. And in that moment, a man, that's curious. But scholars believe that this man was indeed the embodiment of God in that moment. They wrestled with him until daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob, he, touched, he popped his hip out. It's a bit unfair by the sounds of things. And the man said, let me go, for it is time for daybreak. What did Jacob say in response? He says, I will not let you go until you bless me. I will not let you go, God, until you bless me. And in that moment, Jacob says, please tell me your name. And the guy responds, why do you ask me my name? And he blessed him there. Friends, Sometimes fervent prayer requires us not just to ask once. Sometimes fervent prayer requires us not just to ask twice or three times, but to not let God go until He brings about that which He has promised. Now, it might not happen tomorrow. It might not happen the day after. But I believe the rhythm of the Christian faith, the rhythm of God's people, is to seek God and to seek God until something changes, until God brings about that which He has promised. And now I wonder, has anyone been following the revival that, ha- was, that broke out over in the States just recently? I think it's the Asbury, Asbury Revival. What happened was at a college campus, a worship service started and it didn't stop. And it didn't stop. And it didn't stop. And it wasn't a fancy worship service with lights and, 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 and all the, the carry-on. It was a pretty average, acoustic, nothing fancy service. And yet, people that are present there said that there was the tangible sense of the presence of God. And a bunch of different commentators around the place have asked about it and, and, and said, oh, it's this, it's that, it's whatever. But those that have been there have affirmed that there's something different. There's a revival breaking out in that place. And they're listening to a pastor that I know who grew up here in, in Adelaide. Listening to him and, and some of his friends that he's spoken to that are there. He says, this looks interesting from the outside. It looks like a sovereign move of God. But what we need to, what people don't understand is that there is a core group of five or six people that have been praying and praying and praying every day, day after day, 
week after week, now year after year, for a breakthrough of God to happen in that place. And at some point, God said, you know what? Yes, it's going to happen in that place. Why? Because they sought God above everything else. Do we believe that something like that is possible here? Do you actually believe it? Would you even be ready for it? I, I don't know if I would. A hundred hours of worship to begin? It's like an extraordinary youth camp sort of vibe. What if for us as a church, we decided that one of our core values would be seeking and fervently seeking God, praying to God in such a way that we would seek for transformation and for renewal and for revival to break out in this place, in this town. Not for our sake, but for the kingdom's sake. Would we be willing for that? Because I believe that aeroplane prayers are not enough. Saying grace before an hour or before your meal, that's not enough. We need to draw our hearts to a place where we are so broken with how things are that we cannot help but ask God for things to be different. I think the greatest risk for us as a church is to be content with how things are. For I believe that's the enemy's strategy, is not to make us bad, because for many of us in our places of discipleship, where we're at right now, external sin is not really the big issue. We're kind of done with adultery and we're done with murder, we're done with stealing other people's stuff, we're done with all the big stuff. We we struggle with the Sabbath a little bit, if we're honest, but, you know, the the big ones, you know, the stuff you really get in trouble for, we're kind of done with, with those sorts of sins. So the enemy's already lost on that part of the battlefield. But what if the enemy's strategy for us as a church is just to draw our attention to contentment rather than contending for the will of God? What if that is where sin sits for us as a church at this time? Would you be content with this? Because what if that's the enemy's plan? is for us to just be content, to be fine. I don't know about you, but I didn't, I didn't come here to, to steward a fine church. And I don't think you actually have come to church, you don't believe that this church is called to be fine. When you have an argument with your spouse or your partner, when they respond with fine, is it fine? It's never fine. Is it? How are you, honey? Fine. <laughs> it's not fine. It's never fine. Fine is not fine. Fine is never fine. Fine always has an undertone of inadequacy. It always has an undertone of something is not quite right. I don't want to be a fine church in that way. And I believe a central part of that is our 
prayer life? Are you content with where things are? When I think of the rhythm that we are actually called to in prayer, I think of two things. I think of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. If you're not familiar with the story, it's just before Jesus' betrayal. It's just before he is about to be executed. And he is on his knees in a garden with his disciples just a short way off, and he is pleading with God. He is saying, Lord, if this cup can pass from, from me, Lord, if there is another way for the world to be saved that doesn't involve my painful execution, that'd be great. If this cup of suffering can pass from me, please let it be so. But he says, not my will, but yours be done. If there is another way, please, but not my will, but yours, O oh Lord. That's, I believe, the heart of prayer. That we would seek God and say, if there is a way, let there be a way, but not my will, but yours be done. And then we leave the rest up to God. When was the last time you found yourself on your knees pleading with God for something to be different than the way it is. I believe, friends, that is what fervent prayer looks like. But then there's a second place, and it was a teaching of Jesus, a parable in some ways, an analogy, I guess. It wasn't quite a parable. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus, after he teaches on prayer, he says, suppose... I'll pull it up so I get it right. He says, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked. My children are in bed. I'm in bed. I can't get up to give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of your friendship, Yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you that which you need. And so I ask you, or so I say to you, says Jesus, to his disciples, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of, your father, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give you a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, will give you a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, broken, flawed, sinful, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of I think the other part of, servant, of fervent prayer is not being afraid to ask, not being afraid to seek God. 
not being afraid to knock at the door over and over and over and over again. Because God says, and Jesus teaches that God actually honors that. God acknowledges that. God responds to that persistence. We're called to not give up. Remembering that our prayers are not about us. They're not about our experiences. They're not even about what we might see come to pass. But it could just be that if you were to pray and pray and pray and pray, like some of the elders at this college in Asbury, and you pass from this world to be with our Heavenly Father, it might just be from there that you see the revival you were praying for begin breaking out. How often is too often to ask? I believe Jesus is teaching us that we need to keep asking and keep asking and keep asking and not be content to let God go until He brings about that which He promised. by the way, we're talking about shaping culture, aren't we? I believe that fervent prayer like that doesn't just seek God for results in the world. When you seek God like that, it changes this. When you seek God like that, it changes this. So I believe for us as a church to seek fervently a prayerful life, whatever that looks like for you, I don't know, taking 10 minutes in the morning or half an hour in the morning or just whatever, I'm not quite sure, but I believe that when we fervently seek God, not only will we see tangible expressions of God's faithfulness and response to prayer, we will see an inner transformation that shapes us to be the sort of church to be the sort of disciples, to be the sort of followers of Jesus that will radically change this community with the love, grace, and hope of God. That's what it means to shape culture. That's what it means to be a church of God. So I, got a, I, I promised you earlier that I would tell you about what the event is that we've got coming up. We've got prayer night coming up on Tuesday. It's not prayer night anymore, and they just stop calling it night because it's at, not at night, it's during the day. But what God put on my heart was He said to me, Josh, are you can, if you want to have a host a gathering says that prayer is a priority for the life, you're saying prayer is a priority for the life of your church. Is once a month good enough? Probably not. If I wanted to be an NBA basketball player, would training once a month be good enough? I don't think so. So God put it on my heart to not every day chill out. We're not going to do that. What I want to do between now and Easter at the very least is I'm going to open this space Tuesday morning from 9 a.m. for prayer, every Tuesday. 
every Tuesday, and I will be here praying, praying for renewal, praying for revival, praying for transformed hearts, praying for people to come to faith, praying for people to rediscover faith, because I believe that that's what fervent prayer looks like. Now, I know some of you work, most of you work, some of you don't. I know you've got a lot of stuff on, but that's what I believe it's going to cost us, me at the very least, and anyone that would seek to join me, is to fervently seek God in prayer. Tuesday mornings, 9 a.m., I'm going to be sitting right here. There's going to be no fanciness, no lights, no electric guitars, just us and seeking God. And my prayer is going to be, God, I will not let you go until you bless this town the way that you promised you would. Until you see renewal come to this town like you promised it could. Would you join me in that? Would you be here? Or if not here, then somewhere else. Because I believe that when we fervently seek to pray, I believe God will powerfully transform that which He wants to in this town. Would you pray with me, church? Loving God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the way that it speaks into our hearts. And if we're honest, when we think about the challenge of fervent prayer, the first thing that creeps into my mind is all the stuff that makes that not possible. All the responsibilities. All the commitments. All the things about the way that I have structured my life which push you to the side. But Lord, I don't want to be content to just reach out to you when I've run out of me to solve the problems. I want a deeper sense of connection with you. And I, I believe that we are called to be a church, and I believe there are people here that want a deeper sense of connection to you than that. And I really believe that it's those types of disciples that you are calling for to shape the culture of this church and ultimately see renewal come to this town. So Lord, would you give us the courage to have a go at this? And it might be the first time we feel nothing. But Lord, may we persist. May we experience a holy discontent that shapes our heart to not rest until we see all that you would seek to have happen in this community happen by your spirit and by your grace. Help us to have fervent, bold, audacious, passionate prayers to you. Because Lord, we believe that's what you ask for. Shape our hearts by your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.